0: Welcome to season three of the Before They Were Beatles podcast. This season, we join the boys in 1962 as they progress from hopeful auditions to finalising their lineup and recording their first single. But before we jump into this month's episode, I'm delighted to announce I've been engaged as a consultant historian for an exciting new Beatles tribute band project. This won't be your typical Beatles tribute band of mop top pretenders. Focused on the music of the Hamburg and Cabin days of 1961 to 1963, these are your proto punk leather clad rock and rollers, the Savage Young Beatles. The Savage Young Beatles will make their US debut at the upcoming Abbey Road on the River Festival on Memorial Day weekend. And I'll also be there attending as a guest. It's going to be a fun ride. Come and join us on Instagram and Facebook for more details at the Savage Young Beatles. Now on with the show. Before They Were Beatles, episode 22, Studio Two. In this episode, the Beatles make their first visit to Studio Two at Abbey Road, continue to expand their gig schedule make their final lineup change, and attract the attention of a local TV station. This is a story of how one of thousands of amateur British schoolboy skiffle bands in the mid-1950s evolved into the beginnings of the greatest band in popular history. It's a story of hope, creativity, and exploring musical boundaries. It's also a story of tragedy, coincidence, and at times, just sheer luck. It is a story of beginnings. The story of John, Paul, George and Ringo before they were Beatles. I'm your host, Alan J. Porter. Part 1 June 1962 On the 6th of June the Beatles, John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison and Pete Best made their first and in Pete's case one and only Visit to the EMI Studios at Three Abbey Road in the St John's Wood District of London. Historically, this has generally been thought to have been classified as an audition for producer George Martin. But EMI paperwork uncovered in the early 90s showed that right from the start, Martin considered this a proper recording session for the newly contracted group. There is still some uncertainty as to when exactly the Beatles became officially under contract to EMI, but as far as Brian Epstein, their manager, was concerned... This was their first session as EMI recording artists. The session lasted three hours from 7 to 10 p.m. first part, George Martin's assistant, Ron Richards, who was overseeing the session, had the group run through a selection of numbers to warm up and get the feel for them as musicians. Once Richards felt that they were ready to record, they laid down four numbers. The paperwork for the evening shows that they recorded a cover of Basset Macchio, plus three original Lennon and McCartney numbers, Love Me Do, P.S. I love you and ask me why. We don't know much about the recording session details other than the fact that the order I just listed is the order in which the tracks were recorded. Although originally thought to be lost, the version of Love Me Do from this session, on which Paul definitely sounds a bit nervous, was later included in the anthology set. It was during the recording of Love Me Do that the balance engineer for the session, Norman Smith, asked the tape operator Chris Neal to go and fetch George Martin, as he felt they were on to something special. George Martin developed an almost immediate rapport with John, Paul and George, although things were a bit more difficult with Pete Best. The trio impressed him with their irreverent humour and relaxing, easy-going manner. He stayed in the booth for the rest of the evening and for the remainder of the Beatles' career. On the next day, the Beatles returned to Liverpool to start a sequence of 12 consecutive gigs at the Cavern, while they waited to hear if their nascent recording career would progress. Although they had been back in the country for over a week following their return from Hamburg, the Cavern gig on the 9th of June was promoted as a welcome home for the Beatles. Cavern DJ Bob Wooler counted it as one of their best performances. It was also around this time that they started to introduce some of their own compositions into their sets. Ray Ennis of the Swinging Blue Jeans recalled, I remember John and George asking me what we felt like playing our own songs on stage as they were scared about playing them. I said, the only way you'll find out whether people like them or not is to play them. We write something, we play it, and if it goes damn well, we keep it. And if it doesn't, we don't do it anymore. I didn't know what they had written until they started playing them, but it was all good stuff. Not everyone agreed with Ray on their initial reactions to the Beatles playing their own songs. Cavern regular and later record label owner Jeff Davis recalled, I remember the first time they did one of their songs and it was P.S. I Love You. We didn't like it at all. It was all pop. Not like the raucous Little Richard covers or R&B stuff. I didn't like these sloppy songs coming into the set. They were not suited to the Cavern at all. I preferred the harder end of the Beatles, but those songs won me over eventually. Between the cabin gigs, the boys headed to Manchester on the 11th to record another episode of the Teenagers Turn Here We Go radio show. Rehearsal started at 4pm and then between 8.45 and 9pm they sang Besse Macchio, A Picture of You and Ask Me Why before a live studio audience. The show was broadcast on radio on Friday the 15th of June and with the inclusion of Ask Me Why in the set, it marked the first broadcast of a Lennon and McCartney original. Our guest for tonight, entitled Ask Me Why. Our guest being a group by the name of The Beatles. <laughs> The Beatles were accompanied on the trip to Manchester by a coachload of fan club members. And in the post-event rush to get home, the coach apparently left without one passenger. Pete Best was left alone, standing on the street while the rest of the Beatles and entourage headed back to Liverpool. A portent of things to come for Pete, maybe? On the 21st, the Beatles returned to the Tower Ballroom, this time for a Bob Muller promotion, the number one star show, with them a- advertised as joint headliners. The other headlining act, Bruce Channel, who had just scored a top 10 hit with Hey Baby, had been booked by Brian Epstein. Bruce Channel recalled that night, there were lots of kids there, a whole sea of people and I said to Delbert, the harmonica player in his group, they can't all have come to see us and we soon found out that was the case, for the Beatles were very popular. This was a new tactic by Brian Epstein to book known top line acts that the Beatles could play alongside and hopefully even upstage. The rest of the bill comprised the Big Three, the Statesman and the 4Js. A couple of days later, another of the new, more upscale clubs that Brian Epstein preferred was added to the roster with a gig at the Memorial Hall in Northwich, about 25 miles from Liverpool. One of the reasons that Epstein added this venue was that the promoter, Lewis Buckley, ran a series of beat music events all over Britain and he was hoping to get on the circuit. This change in the Beatles' audience and the evolution of venues was marked the following day with what could be their last gig at the Casbah Coffee Club in the best basement. Having been there literally at the start of the club in the quarryman days, it was the passing of an era that was an essential part of the group's development. Casbar itself would close at the end of June after three years of operation. 25th saw yet another new venue as part of Brian's expansion strategy as he had booked the boys an engagement at the Plaza Ballroom in St Helens. The ballroom was operated by a company called Whetstones Entertainment. In an effort to let the group know how important he felt this gig was he sent them a note stating that Whetstone's control 16 venues in the northwest of England. What he didn't explain was that 13 of the 16 were exclusively bingo halls and actually didn't play music at all. The main target of Brian's strategy had always been to develop a relationship with the top ranked company, who were Britain's leading entertainment company with theatres, cinemas, ballrooms and bingo halls all across the UK in their portfolio. The 28 ballrooms they owned, usually branded as Majestic Ballrooms, were used to host beat music shows, and on the 28th of June Brian could check off another part of his plan as the Beatles debuted at the Majestic Ballroom in Birkenhead, a gig that clearly went well as they would play at a dozen more Majestic venues around the country in the months to come. After an exciting month of so many firsts, they rounded out June with a more traditional evening at the Haswell Jazz Club, with them sharing the bill with the big three, and a DJ playing selections of current top 20 records for the Patrons to dance to. Part 2 July 1962 July opened with a special evening at the Cavern as the Beatles were joined for this evening by American rocker Gene Vincent, who they had got to know during their recent stint at the Star Club in Hamburg earlier in the year. It must have been special for them to go on just to go from just a few years previously where they'd watched Vincent from the audience, to now hosting him at their regular home venue. Gigs at the new venues of the Plaza and the Majestic Ballrooms followed another cavern-related event, this time the return of the cavern-promoted Riverside Shuffle floating event on the Royal Iris ferryboat. Instead of being the token beat act to draw the young crowd, this time the Beatles were now sharing the top bill with jazz legend Aka Bilk, who strangers on the shore had been resident in the top ten for going on six months. On this occasion, Bill presented each of the Beatles with one of his signature black bowler hats during the evening. Another sign of the Beatles' growing popularity was a Saturday night gig at the local golf club dance at the Hume Hall across the river in Port Sunlight on the 7th. Although the hall had a 450 capacity, they managed to squeeze in 500 people to hear the group. The Beatles first went international on the 14th, well their first gig outside England anyway, as they drove the 40 miles from Liverpool to Rill in Wales for a gig with the fine-sounding title of the Regent Dansette. In reality, it was a gig in a small ballroom above a high street menswear store. The travels continued a few days later on the 17th as they headed south for the second of their contracted gigs with JB clubs with an engagement in the southwestern railway town of Swindon about 80 miles west of London. Most of Brian Epstein's expansion plans worked out well, but one notable failure was with something closer to home when he arranged for the group to audition at the local cabaret club on Duke Street in Liverpool. Wanting to break into the dinner lounge cabaret circuit was more of a result of Brian's personal tastes rather than an understanding where the potential audience for his charges were. Despite securing a 15 pounds fee for their time, the audition was a complete failure. The manager of the cabaret club, Bob Woodward, recalled that the audience reaction was one of complete indifference. He also noted that the Beatles played so loudly that they caused the windows to rattle. Hardly the laid back lounge experience his customers were used to. Continuing his Beatles vs Top Line Acts idea, Brian promoted two consecutive events at the Cambridge Hall in Southport, where, unknown to the Beatles, a couple of producers from the local TV broadcaster, Granada TV, were in the audience to check them out. And secondly, at the familiar Tower Ballroom in Wallasey under the new NEMS Enterprises banner with Joe Brown, currently a number three in the charts, with his version of A Picture of You, co-headlining with The Beatles. In the night there are sights to be seen Stars like jewels on the ground single was in fact one of Brian's favourite pop songs and had already been folded into the Beatles act with George taking the lead. Part 3 August 1962 August kicked off with another string of engagements at the Cavern. However on the 8th they traded their regular Wednesday night at the Cavern where they should have been sharing the bill with Shane Fenton and the Fentones. Fenton would later go on to 70s pop stardom as Alvin Stardust. And instead, the Beatles headed over the Pennines to Yorkshire for a gig at the Co-op Ballroom in Doncaster, 86 miles away. The Beatles were back afloat on the Royal Iris on the 11th for another riverboat shuffle. But on this occasion, it was a strictly rock and roll affair, as instead of jazz star Ackerbilk, they shared top billing with Johnny Kidd and the Pirates, best known for their chop-topping hit, Shaking All Over. Also on the cruise were the Dakota's, who would later join Brian Epstein's stable of acts. Unknown to those in the audience, and Pete Best, the nighttime Cavern gig would be his last with the Beatles after two years and three days with the group. For the following day, he would be dismissed by Brian Epstein just hours before a scheduled gig in Chester. The stampede Pete initially said that he would complete the Chester engagement, but after a few hours' reflection, he unsurprisingly changed his mind and backed out. His place that evening was taken by Johnny Hutchinson of the Big Three. Hutchinson also sat behind the drums with the Beatles the following night for two gigs in Birkenhead and Wallasey. Perhaps it says something about the Beatles reputation at this time, that the Big Three, who also had an engagement booked that same evening, allowed Hutchinson to take his chance with the Beatles, leaving his regular group to find a replacement for their gig. The 18th of August 1962 is another of those significant dates alongside the day that John met Paul or the day that Brian Epstein visited the cavern. For this was the day that Richard Starkey officially joined the Beatles. I'll be covering the events surrounding the dismissal of Pete Best and the arrival of Ringo in detail in an upcoming episode. Ringo's tenure as the group's drummer started with a two-hour rehearsal session before heading to Hume Hall in Port Sunlight, Head. For their first engagement with the 5-4 lineup of John, Paul, George and Ringo. The Beatles were now the Beatles. August continued to be a significant month for the Beatles, as they also made their first TV recording. For several months, the Manchester-based Granada television company had been receiving letters from fans imploring them to feature the Beatles. Intrigued, the studios and producers to check out the group at two gigs on July 26 and August 1st. Impressed by what they saw, a crew was dispatched to the cavern on the 22nd of August to film a lunchtime performance to be included in a segment in an upcoming episode of the Know the North show. The Beatles performed Some Other Guy and Kansas City Hey Hey Hey. Unfortunately, due to the murky dim lighting in the cavern, the footage was marked as unsatisfactory for broadcast and shelved. But once the Beatles were famous, it was pulled from storage and footage of them performing Some Other Guy was eventually broadcast on the 6th of November 1963 on Granada's scene at 630 TV Evening magazine show. Celebrated playwright William Russell was a regular at the Cavern around this time and recalls the impact of hearing some other guy for the first time as a 14 year old. When the Beatles kicked into some other guy, that was like the end of life for me and a whole new life began from that very moment. The New Luck Beatles line-up ended the momentous month with another of the JB contracted engagements in the southwest of England. This time it was in the Town Hall of Lydney, a small market town on the edge of the Forest of Dean on the English-Welsh border. This one holds a special place on the early Beatles gig roster for me. As decades later, from the mid-1980s to the mid-1990s, I lived in a small village just outside of Lydney and would hear the occasional story of the day that the Beatles came to town and played the town hall. It was while living in Lydney that I began to write and it was hearing these stories, along with my college experiences in Liverpool a few years before, that provided spark that resulted in the original Before They Were Beatles book and now this very podcast. In our next episode, we'll be taking a short break from our ongoing story to take a look at what's involved in setting up a new Beatles tribute band. We'll follow that up in episode 24 with the promised deep dive into the events surrounding Pete Best's sacking and Ringo's arrival as a member of the Beatles. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Before They Were Beatles podcast. If you would like to leave a rating or a review on your favourite podcast platform, that would be great. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. the music heard in this episode includes the beatles money intro from Decca auditions the beatles love me do anthology one the beatles ask me why teenagers turn radio show bruce chanel hey baby joe brown a picture of you johnny Kidd and the pirates shaking all over the beatles some other guy granada tv recording you can find full versions of the music heard in this episode on the dedicated Before They Were Beatles podcast YouTube channel, for which I'll add a link in the show notes. If you would like to make a comment or ask a question, you can follow the podcast Twitter account at Before Beatles. You can also find copies of the original Before They Were Beatles book on Amazon in hardcover, paperback and Kindle editions. Copies will also be available at the upcoming Abbey Road on the River Festival and selected Savage Young Beatles gigs. I'm your host, writer and producer, Alan J. Porter. Stay well, stay safe and enjoy peace and love. The Before They Were Beatles podcast is a production of Megarin Entertainment, a division of 4J's Group, LLC.